0: You. You're
1: now the you just back and we would be honored if you would join
0: us.
2: What's going on my fantastic far-far away family? How the heck is everyone doing today? I hope everybody's doing well. It's a new year, and I think things are going to be better than last year because 2020 was a rough year. I think it will be better. At least it's starting off better because I got some good news. I got the voiceover gig. Yes, I got the job. So all I know for now, or all I'm able to talk about, is it will start production in the end of January. I have a total of 76 lines in the first season, and I will be able to record right from my home studio, which will be a very good thing, because I will be able to keep doing my part for the podcast. But I know from experience how things work, and that could change at any time. So I will let you know as I find out. But we are going to still bring on my longtime friend, Xavier. He will be giving us a hand with the show. Plus, I think he has a better voice than I do. And providing you with the best sounding podcast on your playlist is our first and only priority. So bringing him on as a second host or even a co-host will help in doing just that. Okay, enough with all my rambling. We have a special guest on the show, an awesome actor, director, and star of The Mandalorian, the amazing Carl Weathers. So Mr. Weathers, you got an opportunity to direct an episode of The Mandalorian. How did you feel to get to direct something in the Star Wars universe? The idea of directing something I love and have done for a while
1: now—it's exciting and it's also—it's uh, also a little scary. You know, it is something that is the uh, continuation of something that is beloved by so many around the world and that has such a, a reputation, you know, for excellence. So uh, you walk out and you're excited about the opportunity and you're scared to death because of the opportunity. Uh, But I think we
2: delivered. uh, I've been told it's one of the best episodes of the season. Now the first season of the show racked up seven Emmys and who knows how many the second season will bring. So congratulations to you and the rest of the cast for that amazing accomplishment. I know we would never say we do it for the wins, but it has to give you some good vibes. Um, How can recognition
1: not with Emmy noms, you know, and, and those who won, I mean, Yes, it's nice, man. It's nice to be involved in, uh, in projects that, first of all, people are being entertained by and that they really like and want to see. But that also gets uh, a recognition from your colleagues, you know, and uh, um, I think everybody probably had a lot of joy around those nominations, but then, of course, the wins as well.
2: Star Wars has its hands in everything. Video games, action figures, movies, a TV series, just everything. What is your favorite part when it comes to your character? I mean,
1: all of it is phenomenal, really. I, I can't imagine one one uh, toy or one visual piece of entertainment where uh, grief is, is any more, for me anyway, any more desired than another You know, it happens to be that movies I've done have action figures and there's a grief action figure that is cool, you know, uh, along with the other characters. So uh, that to me is always kind of, there's something special about kids being able to go in their toy box or wherever up on their shelf or wherever they keep their their little stuff you know and and have a grief sitting
2: there in somebody's bedroom you know that's cool now we gotta talk about baby yoda or grogu as he has been named the baby is embraced by all for every one of us
1: who has a kid still alive inside of us the baby the baby oh the baby you want to cuddle the baby You want to just tickle the baby, you want to see the baby, yeah.
2: This little green guy has just took over the internet. Not only took over the internet, but
1: just, you know, just took over people's imaginations. Throughout the years, you know, since the, what was it, the mid-70s or late 70s that Star Wars was out, um, or was it the mid-70s, right? Mid-70s. It was in the mid-70s. Yeah. Um, I mean, all the characters have had their places, I guess you could say, you know, uh as icons uh but somehow this baby you know has just captured people's hearts and part of it i think is just for me you know as a, as a storyteller as a director
2: as an entertainer we love cute kids and we love puppies now, in the show, there isn't much talk about the Sith. They have covered the Jedi, but not the Sith or the dark side. Do you know if there will be something coming in the future of the Sith or the dark side? Well, throughout the, the uh, Star Wars uh,
1: uberverse, they're all there all the time. And, of course, in in, in The Mandalorian... Uh, uh, we have Moff Gideon, who is kind of the the guy who I guess, or the 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 leader, you might say, you mm-hmm. know, of all those kind of uh, bad entities out there. And so he represents to me uh, the dark side, if you will. You know, we don't utilize that phrase, but there is where I think uh, people really get a chance to enjoy. But also, I mean. You know, when you have an actor like Giancarlo who's playing Moff Gideon and first of all, he's so recognizable because of all the work he's done over the years, but he just has an ability without necessarily saying a lot of saying a lot by just Mm -hmm. being on screen, you know, so without twisting the mustache and all that sort of stuff, you know, uh, I think that's where we get our our villain and villainous kind of uh,
2: part of story from. Star Wars has some of the most enthusiastic fans ever. can nobody say there's a better fan than a Star Wars fan. Worldwide, Star Wars fans go crazy over anything that has to do with Star Wars. Did you ever think that the Mandalorian would have this type of reaction from the fans? I had no clue that the fans were
1: going to be as rabid about the Mandalorian as they were. I remember uh, we were back east someplace. Uh and there was a, it's like a Star Wars event day, whatever, the response was insane. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've been involved in some projects that have done really well, and obviously that have fans around the world, but the Star Wars fans and the Mandalorian fans are just crazy, man. And I mean crazy in a good way. They love
2: what, uh, what's been brought to the screen. We can't wait to see what season three will bring to the table. But we have a book to get to. And where we left Bane last week got me super excited to see what happens next. So let's get to it.
0: Bane knew he had to do something. His situation was becoming desperate. He was still floundering, unable to call upon the power he had used to destroy Fulharg. But now, his weakness had become public. Yesterday, during the evening training session, he had approached Kasim to arrange a time for more one-on-one practice, hoping to break free of the lethargy that gripped him. But the Blademaster had refused him, shaking his head and turning his attention to one of the other students. The message was clear to everyone. Bane was vulnerable. As the students gathered in a circle on the top of the temple after the morning drills, Bane knew what had to be done. His reputation had protected him from the challenges of the other students. Now that reputation was gone. But he couldn't sit back passively, waiting for one of the other students to challenge him and take him down. He had to seize the initiative. He had to go on the attack. Today, he had to be the first one to step into the ring. Of course, if he challenged one of the lesser students, everyone would see it as confirmation of the weakness he was trying to hide. There was only one way he could redeem himself in the eyes of the school and the master's. There was only one opponent he could call out. Several of the apprentices were still milling about, trying to find a place where they would be able to clearly observe the morning's action. It was customary to wait until everyone was in place before issuing a challenge. But Bane knew that the longer he waited, the harder his task would be. He stepped boldly into the center of the circle, drawing curious stares from the other students. Cassim fixed him with a disapproving gaze. But he tried to put it out of his mind i have a challenge he proclaimed i call out sirak there was an excited buzz among the students but bane could barely hear it above the pounding of his own heart so
2: this chapter starts off with bane trying to find a way to revive his powers he had to do it before the others started to realize his weakness so he had a thought that he would challenge someone in the dueling ring But he knows he can't challenge a lesser student. This will just confirm their already growing suspicion that his connection to the force has diminished. So he had to challenge the most powerful student. As he stepped into the center of the ring, he's catching some crazy looks from the other students as well as Kasim. But he calls out his challenge. The name that rolls off his tongue was Serac. The crowd cheered in excitement, but Bane could barely hear them because of the pounding of his own heart. You know that Bane was scared as hell. That's why his heart was beating so fast and hard. But I still don't know why he would call out Sirak. He could have called out like the second or even the third strongest student, but now he has called out the worst.
0: Sirak rarely fought in actual combat. Bane had never even seen him in action, but he'd heard other students talk of Sirak's prowess in the dueling ring, telling wild tales of his unbeatable skills. Ever since the Zabrak had approached him on the stairs, Bane had watched his opponent during training sessions in preparation for this confrontation. And from what he'd seen, the seemingly exaggerated accounts of his prowess were all too accurate. Unlike most of the students, Sirak preferred the double-bladed training saber to the more traditional single-blade. Apart from Kasim himself, Sirak was the only one Bane had ever seen wield the exotic weapon with any signs of skill. His technique seemed almost perfect to Bane's inexpert eye. He always seemed in complete control. He was always on the attack. Even in simple drills, his superiority over his opponents was obvious. Where most students took two to three weeks to learn a new sequence, Sirak was able to master one in a matter of days. And now Bane was about to face him in the dueling ring. The Zabrak stepped out from the crowd, moving slowly but gracefully as he responded to the challenge. Even walking to the center of the ring, he exuded an air of menace. He casually flourished his weapon as he approached the twin durasteel blades carving long, languid arcs through the air. Bane watched him come, feeling his heart and breathing quicken as his body released adrenaline into his system, instinctively readying itself for the coming battle. In contrast with his physical body, however, Bane felt no significant change in his emotional state. He had expected to feel a surge of fear and anger as Sirak approached, emotions he could feed off to rip through the lifeless veil and unleash the dark side. But the lethargic stupor still enveloped him like a dull gray shroud. I wish you had challenged me earlier. Sirak whispered his voice just loud enough for Bane to hear. In the first week after Fulharg's death, many thought you were my equal. I would have gained great prestige in defeating you. That is no longer the case. Sirach had stopped his advance and was standing several meters away. His double-bladed training saber still danced slowly through the air. It moved as if it were alive. A creature, anticipating the hunt, too excited to remain motionless. There will be little glory in defeating you now, he repeated. But I will take great pleasure in your suffering. Behind Sirach, Bane saw Lokai and Yivra, the other Zabrak apprentices, pushed their way to the front of the crowd to get a better view of their champion. The brother wore a cruel grin, the sister, an expression of hungry anticipation. Bane did his best to tune out the eagerness on their red faces, letting them blend into the unimportant background scenery of the spectators. All his concentration was focused on the fluid movements of the unfamiliar weapon in Sirac's hands. He had tried to memorize the sequences Sirac worked on during the drills. Now he was looking for clues that would tip his opponent's hand, that might reveal which sequence he planned to use to begin the battle. If Bane guessed right, he could counterattack and possibly end the battle in the first pass. It was his best chance at victory. But without being able to draw on the force, his odds of correctly guessing which sequence his foe would choose were very,
2: very slim. At this point, Bane is looking for some ways to get the upper hand. He has studied Serac's moves and hoping that he could pick the sequence that he'll start with. Do a quick counter on one of those moves and end about quickly. Okay, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Bane can't use the force and he is basing his strategy on a lucky move. He must really be desperate. It sounds like he's about to get killed if you ask me. But Serac says that he wishes Bane would have challenged him sooner. Back when he had first beat Forehawk. That way he would have got more props when he defeated Bane. But he tells Bane he will enjoy his suffering. I think everyone at this academy is crazy as hell. I don't think I could go to a school where everyone was trying to hurt me.
0: Serac raised the double-bladed saber up above his head, spinning it so fast it was nothing but a blur. Then lunged forward. One end came down in a savage overhead strike that Bane easily parried. But the move was only a feint, setting up a slashing attack at the waist from the opposite blade. Recognizing the maneuver at the last second, Bane could do nothing more than throw himself into a backward roll, narrowly escaping injury. His foe was on him even before he got to his feet, the twin blades slicing down in an alternating rhythm of attacks. Left, right, left, right. Bane blocked, rolled, twisted, and blocked again, turning back the flurry. He tried a leg sweep, but Cirac anticipated the move and nimbly leapt clear, giving Bane just enough time to scramble to his feet. The next round of attacks kept Bane in full retreat, but he was able to prevent Cirac from gaining an advantage by giving ground and reverting to basic defensive sequences. He was still desperately trying to gain some advantage by watching his opponent's moves. At one moment, Sirak seemed to be using the jabs and thrusts of Vapad, the, the most aggressive and direct of the seven traditional forms. But in the middle of a sequence, he would suddenly shift to the power attacks of Dujemso, generating such force that even a block strike caused Bane to stagger back. A quick turn or rotation of the weapon, and one of the twin blades was suddenly swinging in again at an awkward angle, causing Bane to reel off balance as he knocked it aside. There was a brief lull in the action as the two combatants paused to reevaluate their strategies, each breathing heavily. Sirac twirled his weapon in a quick, complex sequence that brought the saber under his right arm, around behind his back, over his left shoulder, and around to the front. Then he smiled and did it in reverse. Bane watched the extravagant flourish with a sinking feeling. Sirac had been toying with him in the first few passes dragging the fight out so his victory would seem more impressive. Now, he was showing his true skill, using sequences that blended several forms at once, switching rapidly among different styles and complex patterns Bane had never seen before. It was just one more sign of the Sabrak superiority. If Bane tried to combine different styles into a single sequence, he'd probably gouge out an eye or smack himself in the back of the head. It was clear he was overmatched. His only hope was that his enemy would get careless and make a mistake. Sirak moved in again, his training saber moving so quickly that Bane could hear the sizzle as it split the air. Bane leapt forward to meet the challenge, trying to call up the power of the dark side to anticipate and block the dual blades moving too fast for his eyes to see. He felt the force flowing through him, but it seemed distant and hollow. The veil was still there. He was able to keep the paralyzing edges of Cirax Saber at bay, but it required him to concentrate all his attention on controlling his own blade, leaving him vulnerable to the real purpose of the attack being unleashed against him. Bane's skull exploded as Sirach's forehead slammed into his face. Pain turned his vision into a field of silver stars. The cartilage of his nose gave way with a sickening crunch, a geyser of blood gushing forth. Blind and dazed, he was able to parry the next strike only by instinct guided by the faintest whisper of the Force. But Sirach spun as his saber was turned away and delivered a back roundhouse kick that shattered Bane's kneecap. Screaming, Bane collapsed, his free hand slamming into the ground as he braced his fall. Sirak crushed the fingers under his boot, grinding them into the unyielding stone of the temple roof. A knee came up, fracturing his cheek and jawbone with a thunderous crack. With the last desperate burst, Bane tried to hurl his opponent backward with the dark side. Sirak brushed the impact aside, easily deflecting it with the force shield he had wrapped himself in at the start of the duel. Then, he moved in close to finish the job with his blades. The first blow hit with the impact of a landspeeder slamming into an IRAX, breaking Bane's right wrist. The training saber dropped from his suddenly nerveless grasp. The next strike took him higher up on the same arm, dislocating his elbow. A simple kick to the face sent jagged bits of tooth shooting out of his mouth and bolts of pain shooting through his broken jaw. He slumped forward, barely conscious... As Sirak stepped back and lowered his saber, reaching out with a free hand to grab Bane around the throat with the crushing grip of the Force. He raised his arm, lifting the muscular Bane as if he were a child, then hurled him across the ring. Bane felt another bone snap as he crashed to the ground, but his body had passed into a state of shock, and there was no longer any pain. He lay motionless in a crumpled, twisted heap. Blood from his nose and mouth clogged his throat. A coughing fit wrapped his body. And he heard, rather than felt, the grinding of his broken ribs. Everything began to go dim. He caught a glimpse of a pair of blood-flecked boots striding toward him. And then, Bane surrendered himself
2: to the merciful darkness. Yep, that's what I thought was going to happen. Serac demolished Bane. At first, it looked like Bane was going to at least hold his own. But after Serac played with him for a bit, he blasted Bane in the face with a headbutt. Now, this is going to hurt a lot. Serac was a Zabrak. And if you are unfamiliar with who the Zabrak were, Darth Maul was a Zabrak. So just imagine those horns pounding you in your skull. Depending on how he threw the headbutt. But no matter how he did it. Bane's nose was part of the impact, causing him to lose his sight. Then Surak just destroyed the rest of Bane. Broke his hand, jaw, wrist, ribs, just the name some. Plus, he knocked out some teeth and dislocated his elbow. Bane did not think this through before he stepped into the ring, and he paid the price for it.
0: Kopej shook his head as he studied the battle plan Khan had laid out on a makeshift table in the middle of his tent. The map of Rusan's terrain showed the positions of the Sith forces as glowing red triangles floating above the map. The Jedi positions were represented by green squares. Despite this high-tech advancement, the rest of the map was a simple two-dimensional representation of the surrounding area's topography. It did nothing to convey the grim devastation that had left Rusan a virtual wasteland ravaged by war. Three great fleet battles had taken place high above the world in the past year, scattering debris from the losing side across the sparsely populated world each time. Scorched and twisted hulls that had once been ships had crashed into the lush forests, igniting wildfires that had reduced much of the small world's surface to ash and barren soil. Rusan, despite its meager size, had become a world of major importance to both the Republic and the Sith. Strategically located on the edges of the Inner Rim, It also stood at what most considered the border between the Republic's dangerous frontier and its safe and secure core. Rusan was a symbol. Conquering it represented the inevitable advance of the Sith and their conquest of the Republic. Liberating it would be emblematic of the Jedi's ability to drive the invaders away and protect the Republic's citizens. The result was an endless cycle of battles... With neither side willing to admit defeat. The First Battle of Rusan had seen the invading Sith fleet rout the Republic forces using the elements of surprise and the strength of Khan's battle meditation. The Second Battle saw the Republic try to reclaim control of Rusan and fail, driven back by the enemy's superior numbers and firepower. The Third Battle in the skies above Rusan marked the emergence of the Army of Light. Instead of Republic cruisers and fighters, the Sith found themselves facing a fleet made up primarily of one and two crew fighters, piloted exclusively by Jedi. The common soldiers who had joined Khan's army were no match for the Force, and Rusan was saved... for a time. The Sith had responded to the Army of Light by amassing the full numbers of the Brotherhood of Darkness into a single army, then unleashing it on Rusan. The war that had ravaged the world from on high moved down to the surface, with far more devastating consequences. Compared with space fleet battles, ground combat was brutal, bloody, and visceral. Kopaj slammed his fist down on the table. It's hopeless, scum! The other Dark Lords gathered in the tent murmured in agreement. The Jedi positions are too well defended. They have all the advantages... Kopesh went on angrily. High ground, entrenched fortifications, superior numbers, we can't win this battle. Look again, Khan replied. The Jedi have spread themselves too thin. The big Twi'lek studied the map in more detail and realized Khan was right. The Jedi perimeter extended too far out from their base camp. It took him barely a moment to realize why. The clash between armies of Jedi and Sith, led by Jedi Masters and Dark Lords, had shaken the foundations of the world. The power of the Force raged unchecked across the battlefields, like the thunder of an exploding star. Towns, villages, and individual homes caught up in the storm had been wiped out, leaving only death and destruction behind. Civilians caught up in the wake of war had been forced to flee, becoming refugees of an epic battle... Between the champions of light and dark. Seeing their suffering, the Jedi had sought to console, comfort, and protect the innocent citizens of Rusan. They planned their strategies around defending civilian settlements and homesteads, even at the expense of resources and tactical advantage. The Sith, of course, made no such concessions. The Jedi's compassion is a weakness, Khan continued. One we can exploit... If we concentrate our full numbers on a single point, we can breach their lines. Then the advantage will be ours. The assembled generals and strategists of the Brotherhood of Darkness nodded in agreement.
2: Several raised their voices in roars of triumph and congratulations. And here we go again with the switch to Khan and the other part of the story. I really hate it when authors do this in the middle of the chapter, but you already know this, I've complained about it enough. Kopej is standing in the middle of the tent looking at a map of Rusan. Now, Rusan is a small world, but for some reason, the Sith and the Jedi want it. It sits just inside the inner rim worlds, but other than that, it offers no real value. This war has already destroyed the world, so I really don't get why they are fighting for it. Then Kopej tells Khan that it is hopeless. The Jedi are too well fortified. Then Khan tells Kopej to look again. The Jedi have spread their forces too thin. He states that their compassion is their weakness a weakness that the Sith will exploit. Khan receives shouts and applause from the other masters.
0: Only Kopesh refused to join in the celebrations. The Army of Light still outnumbers us two to one. The heavyset Twilik reminded them. Their lines may be overextended in some places, but we don't know where they are vulnerable. They know our scouts are watching. They hide their numbers just as we hide ours. If we attack a location where their numbers are strong, we'll be slaughtered. The rest of the generals stilled their voices, no longer swept up in their leader's enthusiasm, now that the glaring flaw in his plan had been exposed. Again, there were rumbles of disagreement and displeasure. Kopej ignored the reaction of the other Dark Lords. For all their power, for all their ambition, they were like so many banthas... ...blindly following the rest of the herd. In theory, everyone in the Brotherhood of Darkness was equal. But in practice, Khan ruled the others. Kopech understood this, and he was willing to follow him. The Sith needed a strong and charismatic leader, a man of vision... ...to quell the infighting that had plagued their ranks. Khan was just such a leader and he was normally a brilliant military tactician. But this plan was madness. Suicide. Unlike the rest of the rabble, Kopej wasn't about to follow their leader into certain death. You underestimate me, Kopej, Khan reassured him, his voice calm and confident, as if he had anticipated this question all along and had an answer prepared. Perhaps he did. We won't strike until we know exactly where they are most vulnerable, the Dark Lord explained. By the time we attack, we'll know the precise number and composition of every unit and patrol along the perimeter. How? Kopesh demanded. Even our Umbaran shadow spies can't provide us with that kind of detail. Not quickly enough to use it in planning our attack. We have no way of getting the information we'd need... Khan laughed. <laughs> of course we do. One of the Jedi will give it to us. <laughs>
2: Now, Copez is the only one that doesn't join in the celebration. He states that the Army of Light still outnumber the Sith two to one, and they don't know whether Jedi are weak. The other Masters silenced their uproar, seeing that Copez was right in his statement. From what I get, the rest of the Masters were just a bunch of yes-men. They were all supposed to be equal in the Brotherhood of Darkness, but you can see that Khan was still the leader and held more power than the rest. Now, Copez was not convinced, and he was not about to follow Khan into a defeat. This is where Khan reassures Copez that they will not attack the Jedi until they have the information that they need to win. When Copez asks how are they supposed to get this information, Khan tells him that one of the Jedi's will tell them.
0: The flaps covering the entrance of the long tent serving as the Sith War Room parted as if on cue. And a young human woman, clad in the robes of the Jedi Order, stepped through. She was of average height, but that was the only thing about her that could ever be called average. She had thick raven hair that tumbled down past her shoulders. Her face and figure were perfect examples of the human female form. Her triclopper hued skin was set off by green eyes, smoldering with a heat that was both a warning and an invitation. She moved with the lithe grace of a Twilich dancer as she walked the length of the assembled Dark Lords, a coy smile on her lips, as she pretended not to hear their whispers of surprise. Kopesh had seen many striking females in his time. Several of the female Dark Lords gathered in the tent were gorgeous, renowned as much for their incredible beauty as their devastating power. But as the young Jedi drew closer, he found he was unable to take his eyes off her. There was something magnetic about her, something that transcended mere physical attractiveness. She carried her head high, her proud features issuing an unspoken challenge as she approached. And Kopesh saw something else. Naked ambition. Raw and hungry. At his side, Khan whispered, Remarkable, isn't she? She reached the front of the tent and dipped smoothly to one knee, bowing her head ever so slightly in deference to Lord Khan. Welcome, Githany, he said, motioning for her to rise. We've been waiting for you. It's my pleasure, Lord Khan. She purred. Kopej felt his knees go momentarily weak at her sensual voice, then snapped, too rigid attention. He was too old and too wise to let himself be blinded by this woman's charms. He cared only about what she could offer them against the Jedi. "'You have information for us?' he asked abruptly. She tilted her head to one side and gave him a curious glance, trying to find the reason for his cold reception. After a moment's pause, she answered, I can tell you exactly where to strike at their lines, and when. Lord Hoth put a Jedi named Kiel Charney in charge of coordinating their defenses. I got the information directly from him. Why would this Charney share that kind of information with you? Kopesh asked suspiciously. She gave him a sly grin. Keel and I were close. We shared many things. He had no idea I would come to you with the information. Corpege narrowed his eyes. I thought the Jedi disapproved of that sort of thing. Her smile became a sneer. The Jedi disapprove of a lot of things. That's why I've come to you. Khan stepped forward before he could ask any more questions, placing a familiar hand on her hip and turning her away from Corpege. We don't have time for this githany. He said, You must give us your report and return to the Jedi camp before anyone notices you're missing. She flashed a dazzling smile at Khan and nodded. Of course, we have to hurry. He gently ushered her over to the holo map, and another strategist closed in, shielding her from view as she gave them the details of the Jedi Guard. A few seconds later, Khan emerged from the crowd and walked back over to stand beside Korpesh. Ambition, betrayal. "'The dark side is strong in her,' the Twi'lek whispered. "'I am surprised the Jedi ever took her in. "'They probably believed they could turn her to the light,' Khan replied, speaking just as softly. "'But Githany was born to the dark side. "'Like me? Like you? "'It was inevitable she would join the Sith someday. "'The timing is fortunate,' Corpege noted. "'Maybe a little too fortunate.' It may be a trap. Are you sure we can trust her? I think she's dangerous. Khan dismissed the warning with a soft laugh. (laughs) So are you, Lord Kopej. That's what makes you so useful to the Brotherhood.
2: Now this is when the flaps of the tent open and a Jedi woman walks in. She is dressed in a Jedi robe like an average Jedi, but she is beautiful in all other aspects. She walks across the tent and bows to Lord Khan. Khan introduces her to the others. He tells them that this is Giffney and she will provide them with the information they seek. Hata giving given it to a single Jedi. Giffney tells them that she got it from him. Kopech asks why this Jedi would just give her the information. Giffany tells him that they got close, real close. She knows where every Jedi on the planet is located. Why is it that always a beautiful girl that causes so many problems? Kopech asks Khan why the Jedi would ever let this woman in. He could feel the dark side in here. Khan says that they probably thought that they could turn her to the light. But Kopech still doesn't trust her. He thinks there might be a trap set up by the Jedi. And really, I don't blame him on this one. It just seems too easy that Giffenie just decided to turn to the Sith now. I hope Khan knows what he's doing.
0: Bane was floating, weightless, surrounded by darkness and silence. It seemed he was adrift in the black void of death itself. Then consciousness began to return. His body jerked from blissful unawareness, thrashed in the dark green fluid of the Bacta tank creating a stream of bubbles that rose silently to the surface. His heart began to pound. He could hear the blood rushing through his veins. His eyes popped open in time to see a med droid come over to adjust some of the settings in his tank. Within seconds, his heart rate slowed and the involuntary thrashing of his bruised and broken limbs settled. But though his body was calmed by the tranquilizer, Bane's mind was now fully alert and aware. Memories of motion and pain flickered across his mind. The sight sounds and smells of combat. He remembered the approach of bloodstained boots. His blood. Kasim must have stepped in after he blacked out and kept Sirak from killing him. They must have brought him here to heal. At first, he was surprised that they would bother to help him recover. Then he realized that he, like all the students at the Academy, was too valuable to the Brotherhood to simply throw away so he would survive, but his life was essentially over. Since coming to the Academy, he had worked toward one clear goal. All his studying, all his training had been for one single purpose, to understand and command the power of the dark side of the Force. The dark side would bring him power, glory, strength, freedom. Now, he would be a pariah at the Academy. He would be allowed to listen in on the group lessons... ...to practice the skills in Kasim's training sessions... ...but that would be all. Any hope he might have had of getting one-on-one training with any of the Masters... ...had been crushed in his humiliating defeat. And without that specializing guidance... ...his potential would wither and die. In theory, all in the Brotherhood were equal... ...but Bane was smart enough to see the real truth. In practice, the Sith needed leaders... Masters like Khan or Lord Cordis here at the Academy. The strong always stepped forward. The weak had no choice but to follow. Now Bane was doomed to be one of the followers. A life of subservience and obedience. Through victory my chains are broken. But Bane had not found victory. And he understood all too well the chains of servitude that would bind him forevermore he was destroyed part of him wished sirak had just finished the job
2: okay so now it flips back to bane who is still alive he is floating in a bacta tank he's thinking back to what had just happened to the battle that he had just lost memories of the counters are rushing back into his mind this causes his breathing to quicken the mad droid comes over to check on him this is when he realizes where he is the smell of battle and the sense of battle were there then a pair of bloodstained boots are the last thing he remembers, his blood on those boots. He thinks that Kasim must have stepped in to keep Surak from killing him. He doesn't know why they let him live, they should have just let him die. Then he remembers that every student was a potential master, but he would never get any help from the masters again. No more one on one training, no more anything. When he first came to the academy he had high hopes. The dark side would be able to set him free, but after this he would be left behind. He realized that he would be a servant to the leaders of the Sith and nothing more. He wishes that Surak would have just have killed him in the ring and he would not be here to suffer this outcome. Okay, how does this guy become the leader of the Sith? He sounds like a crying child at this point, wallowing in his own pity. But that's where this chapter ended. You will have to tune in to chapter 14 to find out what happens next. Hope to see you there. <laughs>